This is Foreign Exchange, the prequel novella to the Dr. Rowena Halley series, by Sid Stark. Copyright 2019. Narrated by Sid Stark. Production copyright 2021. Chapter 1. It started off just like any other trip to Russia. After living a life of extreme parsimony all fall, I had saved up enough money to buy a cattle-class ticket from Indianapolis to Moscow, where I had been going every school break for the past six years. Just like I had every single time previously, I promised myself as I sat at the gate at Indianapolis, and then again at the gates at O'Hare and JFK, and with considerable fervency somewhere around hour six of being jammed into the very back row for the ten-hour flight from JFK to Sheremetyevo, Moscow's biggest international airport, that next time, Dima would come to me. The reason I was making this trip, just like all the trips before it, was not because I loved Moscow, although I did, but because I loved someone in it, namely my fiancé, Dmitry Vladimirovich Kuznetsov. Known as Dima to his friends and family, and, increasingly, a national traitor and an enemy of the people to his enemies. And by December 25th, tickets were cheaper on Christmas Day, 2013, Dima had made a lot of enemies. He hadn't originally meant to. In fact, originally he had meant to be a hero of the people, just like his father before him, who had died so gallantly and so pointlessly in Afghanistan shortly after Dima's birth. Being the son of a dead war hero you didn't remember was a lot of pressure. Growing up during Perestroika, and then the incredible turmoil of the collapse of the USSR and the wild, wild Yeltsin years was a lot more pressure. Maybe that explained why Dima had decided to re-enlist after he finished his mandatory two-year military service, only this time in Amon, the Special Forces riot control units that had such a bad reputation. Or, maybe as the only son of a single mother with long-term health problems, he just really needed the money. In any case, they had sent him off to do bad things in bad places, mainly hunting down and interrogating suspected rebels in Chechnya. That had turned out to be less glorious and honorable than Dima had hoped. Back in Moscow, dragging his former friends by the legs into police vans had been even less glorious, and the money had never been very good anyway. So by the time I met him, in 2005, he had gotten out of Amon and started a new career, this time as a journalist hell-bent on fighting crime and corruption. There was certainly plenty of scope for that. Unfortunately, in Russia, crime and corruption had a tendency to fight back. My friends at the NGO I had been working for at the time had all encouraged the fling that flared up between us, saying there was nothing like taking a local lover to broaden your language skills, and Dima had contacts both within the opposition and the police and military. It would be stupid not to make use of this opportunity that had, quite literally, fallen into my lap, snaps to me for the Hamlet-inspired double entendre. No one had expected the relationship to last more than a few weeks. But here I was, eight years later, with a very cheap engagement ring on the fourth finger of my right hand, we had combined Russian and American wedding traditions, and a fiancé who had never visited my home country. As I shuffled, yawning and bleary-eyed from a full 24 hours at airports and on planes, through the passport line at Sheremetyevo, where, as usual, the border guards stared in amused befuddlement at the exotic-sounding name Rowena Halley, I promised myself once again that next time around, Dima would be the one going through this, 
We were going to get married, and he and his mother were going to move to the U.S., just like we'd planned. The fact that I was about to defend my dissertation and graduate, and I still didn't have so much as a whisper of a job lined up for the fall, wouldn't stop us. Just because I was getting a Ph.D. in Russian literature didn't mean I was destined to become a professor of Russian. There were lots of other things we could do. As Dima, with the harsh practicality of a post-Soviet Russian, had pointed out to me more than once, he was ruthless, and I was clever and good-looking. The world should be our oyster. The fact that we were in our mid-thirties and were still fighting the good fight for lost causes was just a blip, not a pattern. I did a double-take when I saw Dima waiting for me at the front of the airport. He was as tall as ever, with the same light brown hair, dark gray eyes, and strong, vaguely Central Asian cheekbones that so many Russians had. But he had grown the kind of scruffy beard that was so popular amongst men in our age group these days. I would have said it didn't suit him, but who was I kidding? Of course it suited him. And it conveniently hid the still-healing scars from when he'd had the crap beaten out of him by six club-wielding men in October. It also allowed the smell of cigarette smoke to cling to him more closely. I told you, he said when I wrinkled my nose as he kissed me. They were the first words he'd spoken. I started smoking again in prison. As soon as he'd recovered enough from the beating to leave his apartment, Dima had promptly gotten arrested for participating in an unauthorized protest and spent 15 days in prison. In a twist of irony, now he was the one being dragged by Amon officers into police vans and carted off to jail. Meanwhile, the people who'd cracked his jaw, two teeth, three ribs, and four fingers were still at large, and were expected to remain that way. I'll quit, I promise, he said. I know you hate it. So does Mama. It's a filthy habit. But I was down at the Maidan, and I needed something for my nerves. How was that? It was a stupid question, but I couldn't think of anything else to say. Shortly after he'd gotten out of prison... Dima had hightailed it off to Kiev to observe the Euromaidan protests, which were becoming increasingly violent. It's a mess. It's, pardon me, but I know you won't get offended, Inachka, a completely fucked-in-the-ass mess. As a general rule, swearing in the presence of women was frowned upon in Russia. But some situations cried out for a vigorous application of Mott, Russian's super-dirty, very-taboo collection of obscenities, and sometimes Dima couldn't contain himself. He talked on and on about what was going on with the Euromaidan the whole ride home through the early morning Moscow streets. Despite his promise to quit, he chain-smoked the entire way, and he kept going on about some woman named Titiana. Who is this Titiana? I finally demanded. I didn't like to think of myself as a jealous person, but any woman who is separated from her man for months at a time by half a continent and a whole ocean has cause for concern. And despite all my lofty declarations of trust and fidelity, I still pricked up my ears whenever Dima mentioned the same woman three times running. Who? All oh, right, you were on the plane yesterday. You didn't hear about it. But I told you about her before. She's a journalist like me. Aha, uh -huh, I said. Well, yesterday she got beaten up. Badly. How awful! Yeah, and Dmitro, another activist, got stabbed the day before. And I wasn't there. I came home on the 24th to be here for you. And as soon as I left, Dmitro got stabbed and Tatiana got the shit knocked out of her. I sat there in silence for a moment as Dima's elderly Neva jeep whirred through the slushy snow. 
Global warming meant that late December in Russia was more fall than winter. It had been colder most of the month in Indiana than Moscow. The New Year's decorations going up everywhere had seemed garish and out of place on the pictures I'd seen in the news. But now snow was finally falling, transforming big city grime into a fairy tale landscape populated by Grandfather Frost, the Snow Maiden, Grey Wolf, the Firebird, Baba Yaga, Vasilisa the Beautiful, and generations of heroes and villains. That's awful what happened to Dimitro and Titiana, I said, once I had come up with a response that didn't involve pouting and shouting. But it's not your fault. You couldn't have prevented it if you'd been there. You can do more good by spreading the word here in Moscow. And what about me? I carefully did not scream. I just drained my bank account to spend my last break before I defend to come see you. I rescheduled an interview for a tenure-track job to come see you. Doesn't that count for anything? That was a selfish thought against the backdrop of major world events and the people caught up in them ending up hospitalized or dead. But I had it anyway. Yeah, maybe. Hey, you want to go down to Kiev? I was thinking of heading down there again, maybe tomorrow. I have a single-entry visa. Rules regarding American citizens entering and exiting Russia were nearly as draconian as those for Russian citizens trying to get into the U.S. Actually, no, it was much harder for a Russian to get a U.S. visa than an American to get a Russian visa. One of the many reasons I always came to Dima instead of the other way around. Wait times for Russians to get U.S. visas were a good six to nine months now, and required jumping through hoops that no American would ever put up with. So I always traveled to him. But I was only allowed to enter Russia once on my current visa. If I went to Kiev, I wouldn't be able to come back to Moscow, and my non-refundable flight was out of Sheremetyeva. Oh, okay. I guess I'll stay here then. I think, I said, choosing my words carefully, that that would be a good idea. I think you need a break from the Maidan anyway. It's not even your fight, Dima, not really. It feels like it is. Only, I don't know what side I should be on. The pro-EU protesters. That seems like the right side, doesn't it? But they've got a lot of Nazis mixed in with them. A lot of my friends can close their eyes to that, but I can't. It must be my Jewish blood or something, finally making itself known. And Russia is my homeland, and the Berkut guys everyone hates so much are my comrades too. I was an Amon officer. It used to be me with a stick and a shield, fighting protesters. So I just don't know what to do, Inichka. I don't know what I'm supposed to feel. I don't know what I want anymore. Or even who I am. All the more reason to spend some time in your hometown, I said. Yeah, with my foreign fiancé. He cut me a sideways look. One side of his mouth was threatening to turn up in a smile. You're mad at me, aren't you? Really, really mad. And rightly so. You want to give me a good slap in the face, don't you? You deserve it, I said. Well, maybe I can make it up to you. And Mama will treat you right, even if I'm a jerk. Here we are. Dima and his mother lived near the Julebina metro station, in the southeast of Moscow. He pulled to a stop in front of a crumbling Soviet-era apartment tower that looked identical to all the other crumbling Soviet-era apartment towers around it. A few blocks down, new apartment towers were going up, no doubt for twice what any of the local residents could afford. It was only a matter of time before they started going up on this block as well. And what would Dima and everyone else in these old buildings do? 
They would be lucky not to be forcibly pushed out of their apartments and tossed on the street. Real estate was yet another rich field for corruption here in Moscow. But I should stop borrowing trouble. Leave the suitcase, Inichka, Dima was saying. I'll bring it once I've parked. Don't argue. You've got to let me ease my conscience for being a prick to you as soon as you got off the plane. My knight in shining armor. Sometimes, said Dima. Chapter 2 The first few precious days of my two weeks in Moscow went about as they always did. Dima alternated between being fervently amorous and obsessing about the stories he was currently chasing. After the first 48 hours, the balance tipped from the first to the second, leaving me to spend more and more time alone in the apartment or talking to Galina Ivanovna, Dima's mother. Under other circumstances, so much neglect from my fiancé and attention from my future mother-in-law might have been a terrible thing, but all that alone time allowed me to make plenty of progress on my dissertation, and Galina Ivanovna was thrilled to spend our evenings discussing it. A medical doctor by profession, she had always had a strong love for literature, and was, we both openly acknowledged, living out her dreams of becoming a philologist through me. She was the one who had turned me on to the poet Marina Tsvitaeva, and she was the one who had convinced me that I could write my dissertation about her. Now, with my defense only three short months away, she was the one who discussed my theories with me, dug up obscure poems, suggested secondary sources, and assured me that I could do this. I really could. She should have been credited as my advisor, but since that wasn't possible, I promised to thank her fulsomely on the dedication page when the damn dissertation finally got finished, defended, and deposited. I won't deceive you, Inetka. That will be very flattering to an old woman's vanity, she said. It was New Year's Day. We had stayed up until midnight, listened to the Kremlin clock tower strike twelve, and drunk champagne to see the New Year in. Now Dima was off chasing a lead that could only be reached on the holiday, and Galina Ivanovna and I were busily discussing my dissertation. And at least we'll know that someone has been taking an interest in your research. Your committee doesn't seem to care at all. They've got a lot else to keep them busy. It was a feeble defense, but I felt obliged to offer it in order to keep a lid on my resentment towards them that had been simmering steadily all semester and was now threatening to burst into a boil. Galina Ivanovna sniffed. And what's more important to a doctoral committee than a doctoral dissertation? They have other students. Any other students who are defending this spring? Um, well, no. Blockheads, like my son. Has he called you? He should be home by now. You'd think he'd tell his own mother when he'd be coming home, but he can't be bothered. He hasn't called me either. He said he had to go talk to a source. Galina Ivanovna sniffed even harder. Well, so much the better. You and I can talk seriously about his future without him here to interfere, then. You know men in general, and Dima in particular. They need a woman to make up their minds for them. Otherwise, they'll just waste their lives away chasing after God knows what. I know, and you know, Inetska, that our Dima can't go on doing what he's doing for the rest of his life. Or maybe even the rest of the year. Those people who attacked him in October, she shuddered. They'll be back. They wanted him to shut up about Chechnya, and what did he do? Went right ahead and published another article about human rights abuses there. Last week, she lowered her voice. Last week I got the call. At work. No name. He told me to tell Dima to back off, 
or next time it would be me picking my teeth up out of the gutter. So what did you do? I asked. I told him to go shove it where the sun don't shine, that's what. Well, of course. Galina Ivanovna was, like most Russian women of a certain age, a terrifying dragon lady. Anyone who made the mistake of threatening her was likely to be sent on their way with some very choice phrases ringing in their ears. Dima came by his filthy mouth honestly, although Galina Ivanovna's cursing tended to have less of the barracks and more of the university to it. Even so, strong men still turned away in fear when she got a good head of steam going. But she was also in her sixties, nearsighted, and diabetic. The men who had done so much damage to Dima, who was younger, fitter, and had extensive combat training and experience, would have no trouble subduing Galina Ivanovna in a physical attack. One would like to think that no one would stoop to assaulting the elderly mother of their political rival on the street. One would be wrong. What did Dima say? I asked. I didn't tell him. I don't want him to worry. Maybe he should worry. He should at least know. Galina Ivanovna made a face at that thought, unwilling to show any weakness, either to Dima or his enemies. Maybe it would help convince him to come to America, I said. Galina Ivanovna was the mastermind behind the plan to get Dima to live with me in America. She dismissed his objections that he couldn't leave Russia with a wave of her hand, and hemmed and hawed whenever we pressed her to commit to joining us there. Maybe, she said. Who's that? Is someone at the door? Seems like it. We both focused on the sound of footsteps approaching our landing. It was probably Dima or the neighbor across the stairwell. But last summer it had been someone who had spray-painted death threats across the door. And if the people who had threatened Galina Ivanovna at work last week had decided to escalate things, coming to her at home was the next logical move. The footsteps stopped in front of the door. Someone started unlocking the multiple locks. Galina Ivanovna and I both exhaled breaths we hadn't realized we'd been holding. Other than us, only Dima had keys. And we could hear him cursing as he struggled with the third lock, which was always sticky. I'll open it from the inside, I called, and went over and let him in. Shut the door, he said, pushing past me and slamming the door behind him. He locked all three locks and moved the shoe rack in front of it. That won't stop them, but it might slow them down, he said. Who were they? Someone was following me. He moved me gently but firmly aside, rushed into the kitchen-slash-dining-slash-living room, and looked out onto the street from the big window by the stove. They're still there, he said, across the street. No, don't look. Stay back. I don't want them to see you. I don't want them to know you're here. He started to open the fortichka, the little window inset into the big window that was the staple of Russian home design. What are you doing? demanded Galina Ivanovna. Don't shout at them. Don't stick your head out the window. Get back. You're right. Dima backed away from the window. I just... They followed me home, to my mother and my fiancé. Inotka, don't go anywhere by yourself. In fact, don't go outside at all. Who are they? I asked again. Dima shrugged. Could be because of the article I'm working on about oil. There are some pretty unhappy oil oligarchs who'd love to shut me up. They're Chechens, said Galina Ivanovna decisively. 
Mama, we've had this discussion before. Most Chechens aren't bad, and most bad people aren't Chechen. A strong sense of personal and national guilt had made Dima into an unlikely apologist for the Chechen people, and he was always trying to combat anti-Chechen sentiment at every turn. Yes, said Galini Ivanovna, but the man who called me at work and threatened me was. What man? Galina Ivanovna gave a short description of the phone call she'd gotten the week before. It has to be the same people, she finished, unless you think you have two different groups following you. It's possible, very possible, actually. Dimulia, what have you gotten yourself into? It's oil, said Dima. It's Chichnya, insisted Galina Ivanovna. Maybe it's both, I said. Plenty of oil in Chichnya. God damn it! said Dima. Why do you have to be so smart? You see, said Galina Ivanovna triumphantly, Inichka knows. Dima's right, Inichka. You shouldn't go outside. Now it's Chechen oil gangsters looking for you. Okay, I said. I'll stay here. And I meant it. Insisting that you need your freedom and no one can tell you what to do and you're not going to stay locked up inside is for selfish amateurs and the terminally naive. If Galina Ivanovna was right, and the people following Dima and threatening her were Chechen gangsters with ties to the oil business, they were very, very serious people. Better to spend a few days under voluntary house arrest than get shot down execution-style or dragged off, tortured, beheaded, and dumped in a public place as a warning to others. Dima was still staring daggers out the window. They followed me home, he said. They threatened my mother. I don't even want to know what they do to my fiancé. I should do something about them. Inichka, bring me my camera with the big zoom. It's in the right-hand pocket of my coat. I went and fetched the camera from Dima's coat. It was a heavy, thigh-length parka with six capacious pockets, all stuffed with cameras, recorders, cigarettes, a knife, and, when I reached into the bottom right-hand pocket, what felt like his Makarov handgun. I backed away quickly from that. I didn't want to know about any weapons Dima might be carrying, although I wasn't surprised. He had been a crack shot in the military, had been his unit's designated sniper, and he still only felt fully dressed when carrying a gun. What he planned to do about his concealed weapons if he got arrested, again, I didn't want to know either. Galina Ivanovna and Dima were arguing fiercely about the advisability of photographing the men watching the apartment when I returned with the camera. Dima had already taken several shots with his phone, but the lens wasn't good enough for anything useful to show up. He took several more shots with the telephoto lens I'd brought him, before stiffening and backing away. They know I'm watching them, he said. One of them's giving me the finger. Motherfucking pederasts. Dima, language. There are ladies present. Sorry, Mama. I meant to say that these iniquitous villains are bringing shame on the honor of the Russian warrior by taunting their enemy from afar instead of meeting him on the field of battle and threatening ladies and unarmed civilians. Is that better? A proper Tolstoy, said Galina Ivanovna. Now draw the curtains. Chapter 3 Dima sent the pictures he'd gotten with the telephoto lens off to his editor at Nyazavisimaya Pravda, Independent Truth, the news service he worked for. It was known for its fiercely independent views, its pointed criticism of the government in general and Putin in particular, and for losing its journalists to assassination on a frighteningly regular basis. 
I was proud of Dima for having the courage of his convictions. I was not so proud that I didn't periodically suggest that he go into a safer line of work, like private security or soldier of fortune, or at least move with me to America. Not that I thought America was so very much terribly better. But with the newspaper business imploding, American journalists were much more likely to starve than be murdered, and being in a foreign country might break the grip of Dima's obsession with crime and corruption in Russia. I brought the topic up after supper, which provoked the predictable response of, I can't leave Inetska, you know that, but you should. You should go back to America, where it's safe. I'm your fiancé. I should be in the same country as you, especially once we get married. Which is going to happen this summer, Galina Ivanovna interjected. Inetska, my dear, where do you want a wedding? I think it depends on where we're going to live afterwards, I said. And I guess that depends on whether I get a job at an American university or not. You'll get a job, said Galina Ivanovna. Those American universities must be begging on bended knee for you to come work for them. Hmm. I had tried to explain the reality of the American academic job market to Galina Ivanovna. But she, just like everyone else not directly involved in the process, stubbornly refused to accept the fact that I'd be lucky to get a part-time adjunct position. You should go back to America, Dima said again. It's not safe here. But this is where you are. Besides, America isn't so safe. America isn't how you think it is. Although in many ways a rebel, Dima shared the contradictory vision of America that most of his fellow Russians held. In the popular Russian imagination, it was both a land of ease, riches, and boundless opportunity— and a place of cruelty, corruption, and conspiracies so Byzantine that ordinary people could hardly fathom them. And maybe both those visions were true, but they failed to include the fact that America, like Russia, was mostly a land of ordinary folks just trying to get by. I've seen the news, Inetska. I know enough of what America's like to know you'll be better off going back. Forever. You're better off in a country that's moving towards the future, rather than one stuck in the past. But America's not moving towards the future. This was also an argument we'd had many times, and would continue to have until Dima came and saw America for himself. If he ever did. I was starting to get a sick feeling that maybe he wasn't going to be coming to visit me in America. Not now. Not ever. That was too awful a thought to contemplate, so I rehashed the old argument instead. Empires rise and fall, you know that, and sometimes they rise again from their own ashes. That's where China is now, and maybe Russia, too. But in America, we're in the phase of fiddling while Rome burns. At least you're still in Rome, Dima said. Enough, said Galina Ivanovna. Inetska will get a job at a good university in America, and you, Dimulia, will marry her and go live there with her and stop being followed everywhere by gangsters and headbreakers. You can fight American corruption instead if you can't give it up. And when am I going to get grandchildren? When you stop sitting on our bed, said Dima. Galina Ivanovna tisked and wagged her finger at both of us, but she looked pleased and got off the fold-out couch in the dining-slash-living room that was also Dima's bed, and mine too when I was staying with him. I'll leave you two to it, then, she said, although maybe you should wait until after Inetska defends. We might need the practice, said Dima. Repetition is the mother of learning. 
He was smiling, the anger at the people following him and the stress of our ongoing argument about where to live pushed into the background. Sometimes it was easy to forget why I had ever gotten engaged to him in the first place. But sometimes, like right now, it was easy to remember. Chapter 4 The next morning it became harder to remember once again, when Dima insisted that I brush up on my self-defense skills, and then, frustrated at his own inability to keep his hands off me when we practiced, told me we were going for a run instead. You need to keep fit, he said. I am fit. I run every day. You haven't gone running once since you've been here. I've been here for a week, and you told me not to go outside. You shouldn't go outside by yourself, but you should go running with me, right now. You need to stay in shape. I thought you liked my shape the way it is, I said, unable to stop myself. Dima groaned. Stop flirting with me. This is serious. What if they come after you? You need to be able to run away. You're right, I said, so let's go running. As a general rule, I did not enjoy running with Dima. His runs tended to have a strong element of the forced march to them. But I was tired of being holed up in the two-room apartment, and an outing with Dima would be an outing with Dima, and agreeing to work on improving my fitness might ease some of the anxiety that was emanating off of him. Normally, we went running in Kuzminki Park, which was only a few blocks away. But Dima said he didn't want to go running too close to home, in case we were still being watched. It would be difficult to find and shake a tail in the short walk to Kuzminki. Much easier on a long metro ride. And besides, if I was going to go out of the house, I should have a proper outing. So we took the metro to Gorky Park. It was a beautiful day, and the day after the biggest holiday of the year, so Gorky Park would be teeming with people, which meant it should be safe enough. Even so, Dima was convinced someone had gotten on the train with us at Julebina, but he thought we might have lost them when we changed to the ring line at Taganskaya, and he saw no sign of them when we changed to the red line at Culture Park, or when we exited at Frunzenskaya and went on foot from there to Gorky Park. Of course, they could have multiple teams following us, he said. That's what I'd do. What have you done? I asked. Of course I love you, but who else would care enough about you to assign multiple teams to follow you all over Moscow? Dima lifted one side of his upper lip in a half-smile, half-growl. You're saying I'm suffering from persecution mania, maybe grandiose delusions. Certainly not. Of course you're the most important person in Moscow. To me. If only I were important only to you, Inetka. And you're probably right. But you can't be too careful. One moment of inattention and... He made a throat-slitting motion with his hand. Okay, is it safe to run here? We both looked around, but all we saw were children playing and couples walking hand in hand. It had snowed overnight, a proper snow, and now it was sunny and warm, making the snow slushy underfoot. In the bright cheer of midday in Gorky Park, fears of assassination seemed overblown. The worst thing we had to worry about here was a twisted ankle from running in the slush. Such considerations did not stop Dima from starting off at a brisk trot and shouting at me to keep up with him. I did so with minimal enthusiasm. Come on, Inetka, come on. Running fitness might save your life someday. I tried to pick up the pace, but that only made me slide around in the slush more. My sneakers were never going to be the same. 
I ground my teeth and concentrated on placing my feet with exactly the right amount of downward force to keep from slipping and landing face-first in a snowdrift. Keep up, Inutska. Time to show everyone the meaning of female equality. We can discuss female equality, I panted, struggling up a short hill and catching up with Dima where he was waiting for me at the top. When you start training in rhythmic gymnastics, I'd like to see you do a split like Yana Kudravtseva. Galini Ivanovna was a big fan of rhythmic gymnastics, which meant Dima and I had perforce become experts on it, too. Dima laughed and then took off again even faster. When I failed to keep up with him, he slowed down to run backwards in front of me and lecture me on my poor pacing and inability to keep my footing in the slush. "'You need a rhythm,' he said. His eyes were bright, and for the first time since I'd gotten to Moscow, he looked truly happy. He did love P.T., I know. Let's recite the names of female heroes of the Soviet Union. Repeat after me. Nadezhda Volkova, Nina Sosnina, Zina Partnova, Zoya Kosmodemyanskaya. Nadia, Nina, Zina, Zoya, Nadia, Nina, Zina, Zoya. Kiss my ass, I said. Good rhythm, Inachka. Now keep it up. Nadia, Nina, Zina, Zoya. Go! Get fucked! Good girl, Ina. Keep going. We did a good five kilometers of that kind of nonsense, winding around the park and then getting back on the Pushkin embankment that ran along the Moskva River and running on it until it crossed under the Andreevsky Bridge and dumped us into the Sparrow Hills Park. As befitted the name, the park there was much hillier, and Dima took off up a steep slope. I slogged after him and wondered yet again what I had ever seen in this man other than the fact that he was good-looking, and brave, and intelligent, and burning with righteous zeal, and, on occasion, full of wit and boyish mischief. And he loved me more than any other woman in the world. In fact, I could say with a fair amount of certainty that I was the second most important thing in his life, after his job. And Dima's tough love-style coaching did, in fact, work, in that towards the end I was running smoothly through the snow and keeping pace easily with him although that might have had more to do with the fact that he started flagging badly. Female! Equality! I shouted at him in time with my footsteps as I drew level with him. Stop! Smoking! I shouted over my shoulder as I passed him, and picked up the pace as I went up a sharp rise, leaving him bent over double and gasping for breath. I went over the top of the rise and along the path for a few more meters, until I realized that I had gotten out of sight of Dima. Oops. I slowed down. The buddy system only worked if you stuck with your buddy. Sparrow Hills Park should be perfectly safe in the middle of the day, but I still didn't like being separated from Dima. The crowds that had surrounded us by the embankment had disappeared now that we were in the woods on the steep hills above the river, and I was all alone. All alone except for the man coming down the path towards me. His red and blue tracksuit stood out against the white snow and bare birches. There was nothing unusual about someone running around the park in a red and blue tracksuit. Dima was wearing an identical one. But something about the way he looked at me as he approached made the hair on the back of my neck rise. I slowed to a walk. Dima! I shouted over my shoulder to let the man know I wasn't alone. You coming? Then I winced. If we were being followed by people looking for Dima, I just broadcasted his location. The man was getting closer and closer. He moved like someone used to running, and even through the tracksuit I could see the muscular solidity of his body. 
His build and movements reminded me of MMA fighters I'd seen. Maybe because he was one. It was a popular sport here. He was on the short side and had a reddish tint to his dark hair and beard. The look was unmistakable for those who'd learned to pick out the different ethnicities of the former USSR. Oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, said my reptilian hindbrain. He's probably just a perfectly friendly, normal Chechen MMA fighter out for a training run, said the part of me that believed racial profiling was wrong. Meeting people's eyes and smiling at them as they pass is an American custom. In Russia, it's weird. I turned away from him to look back at Dima, who was now laboring up the hill into view. He smiled and waved at me. Then he stiffened, staring at something off to my side. I turned back to look at the other man. He smiled broadly at me, and then, turning so that he kept facing me as he jogged past, made a gun shape with his right hand and pointed and shot it straight at me. He gave me one final bright smile, and then took off down a side path that led deeper into the woods and out of sight. Chapter 5 Dima! Dima, come back! Dima had found his second wind and taken off after the man who had made the shooting motion at me. When he heard my shouts, he turned around and came back. He's gone, he said. Disappeared. Are you okay? I'm fine, I said. Just surprised. Really, I was terrified, but I didn't want to get Dima any more worked up than he already was. How the fuck did they find us? I don't know. If someone had followed us on our run, they'd been very clever about it. Neither Dima or I had noticed anyone, and we'd been looking. We'd alternated between taking the heavily trafficked embankment and suddenly darting off onto the lightly populated side trails, not even knowing ourselves where we'd be going next. It would have taken multiple followers to track us, and they would have had to be both good and lucky. Maybe it was just random, I said. Just some jerk who wanted to scare me. It happens a lot. Just ordinary sexual harassment. But why did he shoot at you? Men are weird, I said. True, but still. I know, I said. Maybe it was random. Maybe it wasn't. Let's go home. And you can tell me what you've gotten mixed up in. Okay. We'd ended up almost under the ski jump at the top of the Sparrow Hills Park, right under Moscow State University. We picked our way down the steep hillside, slipping and sliding in the wet snow, until we got to the Sparrow Hills Station, located on a bridge over the Moskva. I don't see any followers, Dima said, but we should try to throw them off even so. Throwing them off involved changing trains onto the inner ring line, getting off at Dostoevskaya on the northern side of town, catching a bus into downtown, getting back on the metro and taking the green line out to Avtozavodskaya on the outer ring line, catching another bus out to Kuzminki Park, and then walking home from there. By the time we got back to the apartment, it was almost dark, and we were as sure as we could be that we hadn't been followed. You have to tell me what's going on, I said as soon as we got back into the apartment. Dima had steadfastly refused to talk about it the whole two hours we had been traveling around the city, for fear of being overheard. Tell me too, said Galina Ivanovna, who was shamelessly eavesdropping from the couch-slash-bed in the dining-slash-living room. Normally you tell us everything about your stories. What's so terrible about this one that you can't talk about it? Inochka's right, said Dima. He went and sat down on the couch and patted his knee, motioning for me to sit on his lap. 
Since he wasn't much for public displays of affection, he must have been more shaken than he let on. I wasn't much for public displays of affection either, but given his current state, I decided to humor him. I sat down. He put his arms around me and inhaled the scent of my hair. Thank God that man didn't have a real gun, he said. Maybe he did, I pointed out. He didn't want to hurt me. He wanted to scare me. What man? demanded Galina Ivanovna. Dima gave a short recap of our adventure in the park, leaving out the bit about him shouting at me and me outrunning him. I told you, exclaimed Galina Ivanovna when he was finished. Chechens! And Russians, said Dima gloomily. If it was connected, it could be nothing. Inishka says that kind of thing happens to her all the time. And of course, a pretty girl like her, she's going to get lots of male attention. But it's better not to think it's a coincidence. See her to think it's connected to your current story. Especially after my phone call. So tell us, Dimulia, what's going on? What have you gotten yourself into this time? Oil, said Dima. Well, of course, snapped Galina Ivanovna. What isn't about oil in Russia? But there's more to it than that. We dug the story out of Dima bit by bit. When we were done, I could see why he had wanted to keep us out of it. It was a nasty piece of corruption even by Russian standards, and that was saying something. According to Dima's research, Vasnyeft, Eastern Oil, a Siberian oil producer, had been looking to merge with Kofnyeft, Caucasian Oil. The merger was not going smoothly. There had been two shootouts between representatives of the firms. When violence had proven inconclusive, both had started aggressively offering kickbacks and bribes to their contacts in Moscow in an attempt to take out the other firm through legal means. You know how it is, Dima said. This isn't the 90s anymore. Shootouts are for old-fashioned barbarians. They had a couple just for the sake of propriety, and then they switched to the preferred method of today's Russian oligarch, we're destroying each other, nightmaring each other's business through bureaucratic means. They've each been trying to get the other's business declared illegal, have the assets seized by the state, at which point the other business would be able to come in and take it over for Copex. So what, I asked. I mean, what's so unusual about any of this? Why is this a story? And why are they so determined to get you to stop writing about it? At first, this wasn't the story, or not the main one. I only just realized the two stories were connected. So, what's the main story? It turns out oil isn't Kofnyev's only business. They're also training mercenaries. I guess they figured if the Americans can have Blackwater, they can too. They've got quite an army already. That's what I was investigating when they sent their hired thugs after me this fall. I let it drop when I was in jail, and again when I went to Ukraine, but I keep picking it back up again. I can't leave it. You see, their army of mercenaries isn't for hire to just anyone. They're a private security force called Kafbayets that answers directly to the Kremlin. That's a noble name for an ugly business, I said. Kafbayets meant Caucasian warrior. But again, so what? Well, I know, that's what I thought at first too. But I still had to investigate it. And that's been a slow process. They don't advertise what they do openly. If you go online or go visit their main office in Grozny, they're a charity that provides a safe training space and free lessons in MMA to orphans, homeless kids, and the children of veterans of the wars. 
So, the sons of guerrilla field commanders, I said. Lovely. Yeah, but it's still a charity, and they really are helping street kids and orphans, of whom there are far too many. But they're also recruiting them for their private security force, as well as bringing in jihadists and hired killers from all over the world. I thought they were trying to crack down on foreign jihadists in Chechnya, I said. Aren't they rounding up and killing Wahhabites? Yeah, but these are their jihadists. You know how it goes. Jihadists are useful, so everyone's ready to get into bed with them as long as they think they can use them. They've got hundreds of soldiers for hire now, and they've been using them. They've been gifted to the Kremlin as a way of demonstrating Chechen loyalty, and the Kremlin's been sending them into places where the presence of regular Russian troops would be a political embarrassment. But what's one more crazy Chechen in the Middle East? If anything comes out, the Kremlin can say something stern about the war on terror and wash its hands of the mess. I can see how no one would want that to get out, I agreed. And then I found out that the head of Kofbayets is the brother-in-law of the head of Kofnyeft. A little more digging, and, well, no one will be surprised to hear that they're two parts of the same whole. But that's not all. Not once Vaznyeft got involved. Let me guess, I said. Vaznyeft wants to take over the mercenary business as well as the oil business. Exactly. Vaznyeft would love to have their own private army. From what I can gather, they wouldn't be averse to keeping the arrangement and loaning it out to the Kremlin. But they renegotiate even more favorable terms. Vasnyev's chairman is the brother of a Duma member. And maybe expand the business so they hire it out to other clients as well. I've heard third-hand that they're already sniffing around orphanages, looking for boys who are aging out and desperate for cash. I'm not sure what the deal would be. Would they get the boys out of their mandatory military service, or get them into the best units, and then have a place guaranteed for them when they get out? Maybe both, depending on what strings they could pull. Yuck, I said. Oh, I know. Anyway, Vosneft has brought a suit against Kofneft in a local court that, if they win, will pretty much guarantee that Kofneft will be shut down, and then Vosneft can come in and pick up the pieces. And Vosneft is likely to win because it's a Russian court, not a Chechen one, and the judge is almost certainly in their pocket. But Kofneft has major leverage because of Kofbayets. They've got a very big roof somewhere in the Kremlin, and they're calling on it for protection. And neither side wants any publicity at this delicate moment. So, of course you're determined to give them some, I said. Dima grinned. It's like you know me, Inachka. Yes, of course I'm going to shed some light on it, especially since I think Kafbayets might be mixed up in the Maidan somehow, maybe on both sides. But that means that the only thing Kovnyeft and Vosnyeft hate more than each other right now is me. I think they've teamed up to try to take me down. If they weren't trying to take you and Mama down as well, I'd be flattered. That is flattering, I agreed. But flattery isn't worth a bullet in the head. Dima stopped smiling. No, you're right. So I've decided I'm going to back off until you leave Moskwa. Let them think they've scared me off, and then, as soon as you're out of the way, babach! Front page exclusive, straight to the heart. And what about your poor old mother? demanded Galina Ivanovna. Her voice was angry, but she was smiling a little at him, too. She never could stop herself from being proud of him. Are you going to just leave her to be murdered by hired killers? 
No, Mama, of course not. You should leave too. Get out of town. Go visit your brother in Murmansk or something. You should be safe enough on the Arctic Circle. It's true that they probably won't follow me to Murmansk, said Galini Ivanovna. And if they do, their guns will freeze solid before they can do anything. Chapter 6 The next couple of days I spent in the apartment, hiding out from bad guys, revising my dissertation, and prepping for the interview that had originally been scheduled for this week, but that I had rescheduled so that I could be here with Dima. Which may have been a very stupid decision, since it was an interview for a tenure-track position at a Research One institution. As my advisor had told me, I was incredibly fortunate just to be invited for a first-round interview. And since it was in the Midwest, I even had a shot at getting it. This knowledge was not helping my nerves. Since I was now in a position to make a direct comparison, I could say with certainty that I was more stressed about the interview than I was about the possibility of getting shot by Russian gangsters. I tried to downplay the interview when I talked about it with Dima and Galina Ivanovna. Neither of them really had a good idea of how American higher education functioned, so words like tenure track and R1 institution had little meaning for them, especially since they didn't exist in Russian and I had to make up my own versions. They also, especially Galina Ivanovna, stubbornly refused to accept that my chances of getting this job were vanishingly small, even after making it into the top ten candidates and getting invited for a first-round interview. Since I hadn't even defended yet, I knew that I had most likely been invited as a safety candidate, someone to call on if their top-choice candidates all got offers from Ivy League and West Coast schools. "'Who could be better than you, Inichka?' said Galina Ivanovna. Certainly no one else will speak better Russian. Probably at least half the candidates will be native speakers, I said. There was a strong preference in a lot of programs for native speaker teachers, so that was another black mark against me. I assumed that half the time my applications were thrown away as soon as the search committee saw my distinctly un-Russian name. Galina Ivanovna sniffed. But how many of them speak Muscovite Russian? I'll bet half these so-called native speakers are really Ukrainian or Belarusian. Yes, but I personally know several who are from Moscow, I countered. Still, you have an American passport. No need to fuss over a visa for you. That has to count for something. Maybe, I said, in order to keep the peace. Dima, since you're not writing anything right now, look up Michigan. Where is it? Is it somewhere you'd like to live? Dima dutifully brought up the Russian-language Wikipedia page on Michigan and began to read it out loud to Galina Ivanovna. True to his word, he had stopped investigating the vosnieft kofnieft kofbayets affair and had been staying at home with me. He had insisted on both of us putting in vigorous self-defense training sessions every day. Since Galina Ivanovna was out during the day, these training sessions often morphed into something a little more romantic, but that was okay. More than okay. Freed for the moment from obsessing about his story, he was much more focused on me. And right now he was reading about Michigan with every evidence of interest, and even said that he could see himself living there. If only I had any hope of being able to actually get the job. By the third day of our voluntary house arrest, both of us were going stir-crazy. Dima had been keeping a regular watch for our followers, but had seen no sign of them. 
I put in a quiet word at the paper that I'm pulling out of the Vasniev story for now, he said. And I told them that as soon as you go home, I'll be going back to Ukraine. I think we have a leak there, so our good friends at Vosniev and Kofniev have probably already heard the news. We may be in the clear. Do you want to go running? With you? He grinned. Of course with me, unless you've got another fiancé stashed somewhere. Only you. Promise me you won't go all drill sergeant on me this time, though. He grinned some more. I promise. One look at you will drive all such thoughts out of my head anyway. No one in any of my units was ever half as good-looking as you. Too bad. Maybe if Amon had more good-looking women, they'd be able to solve their problems with less violence. How do you say it in English? Have sex and don't fight? Something like that, yes. Sounds like wisdom to me. So what do you say? Two workouts today. Our first workout delayed us so that it was almost noon when we finally set out for our run. We decided to try Kuzminki Park, both because it was close and because Dima wanted to see if anyone was trying to follow us. And what if they are, I asked. I've backed off, just like they wanted. They'd be idiots to shoot us now. The worst thing they'll do is come talk to us. In which case I'll tell them that I'm not doing that story anymore. Dima's blithe assurance that we had nothing to worry about did not prevent him from doing a thorough check of the street outside the apartment, before texting me and telling me it was safe to come out. And then we took a circuitous route to the park, ducking into side alleys and doubling back until Dima was satisfied that no one was tailing us. It was another warm, slushy day, not at all the way early January should be. We ran for the better part of an hour, until I said my shoes were soaked through, I was getting a blister, and I wanted to go home. Good thing I'm not being a drill sergeant right now, said Dima. I thought you were supposed to be my knight in shining armor anyway. Good point. Should I carry you home, my lady? No, I can walk. I just don't want a nasty blister that will bother me the whole way back to America. Very well. Home we goes in. We can go back onto the street there. Who's that? A man in a red and blue tracksuit came jogging out of a stand of fir trees and headed in our direction. For a heart-stopping moment, I thought he was the same man who had made the shooting motion at me in Sparrow Hills, but as he drew closer, I saw he was Russian, not Chechen. He was looking at us in the same intent way, though. This way, Dima hissed, and hustled me down a side path, shielding me with his body. Hidden behind Dima, I couldn't see what the other man did, but Dima stiffened as he jogged past. I know him, he said, once the man was out of sight. He was one of the people who followed me home the other night. Do you think he followed us here? Dima shook his head. I would have noticed. They must be watching the apartment. When they saw us leaving in the running clothes, they probably sent someone over here to look for us. And he found us. Well, did he do anything? He just looked at me, let me know he'd found me. But you're not doing anything about the story now. Why do they care? To make sure I keep not doing anything. Come on, let's go home. Dima was in a grim mood all the way home, and as soon as we got back, he put in a call to Dasha, his editor, filling her in on the situation and asking if they could offer any protection. She says no, he said when he hung up. They're stretched too thin as it is. 
but you're going back to America in a couple of days. That's good. You'll be safe there. You should come with me, I said. I couldn't get a visa in time. Well, maybe you should start working on it. Sure, said Dima, just as soon as things calm down in Kiev. So, never. He shrugged. Let's have supper, he said. Chapter 7 Dima said we were going to stay in the apartment until I set off for the airport. He wanted Galina Ivanovna to stay home too, but she refused. I have a duty to my patients, she said. I couldn't look my mother's memory in the face if she found out I'd been scared away by a couple of bandits. Galina Ivanovna's mother had been a field medic in World War II and had been decorated twice for valor in battle. And they're hardly likely to come snatch me at the clinic, she went on. This isn't the first time something like this has happened. I know the drill. Lay low, don't take chances, and in a couple of days it will all blow over. Until you do something else with more courage than sense to get their attention. Dima argued with her about it for a good half an hour, until she broke him down and he agreed that she could go to work, but only if she traveled there and back with Marfa Vasilyevna, a colleague who lived two floors down on the same stairwell. Marfa Vasilyevna's husband drove her back and forth to the clinic every day, and frequently gave lifts to Galina Ivanovna as well. Just don't fight while you're cooped up here together all day, Galina Ivanovna said. I'm sure we'll find something more useful to occupy ourselves with, Dima said, one brow raised. Grandchildren? asked Galina Ivanovna. After Inochka defends, Dima said firmly, but meanwhile we can train. In self-defense. Galina Ivanovna snorted. Dima suppressed a smile. We all knew how self-defense training was likely to go. And so went the first day. But the next morning, before we could start either training or training, he got a call from Dasha. A couple of prominent Ukrainian nationalists, a.k.a. neo-Nazis, had gotten badly beaten near a police station in Kiev. Could Dima write a story about it? Everything that had anything to do with Kiev and the Euromaidan was hot stuff right now, and they might be able to sell the story on to other news outlets if they hustled. Those guys, I think they got what's coming to them, Dima said into the phone. Then write about that, I could hear Dasha say. I don't think that's a story anyone wants to hear. Well, maybe they should. Or can't you interview someone from Berkut? Don't you have connections there? Yes, said Dima, sounding as if the admission were being drawn out by red-hot pincers. Berkut was the Ukrainian version of Amon. They had been brought out to beat up and shoot the Euromaidan protesters, generating a massive international outcry. As he had said, Dima couldn't condone what they were doing. But they were still his comrades, and he couldn't turn his back on them either. Now, that would be a story. An in-depth interview with members of Berkut. Do you think you could do that? Maybe, Dima said, still sounding like every word were being extracted under torture. But not now. My fiancé is here. I can't leave her. Not when these guys are following us. Are they still following you? They were a couple of days ago. Well, make some phone calls. You're an investigative reporter the 21st century. You can investigate from home. I can make a few phone calls, 
Dima agreed. I'm sorry about this, Ina, he said once he'd hung up. But maybe I should do what Dasha wants and see if I can get someone to talk to me. I should be able to do it all from here. I told him it was no problem. It would allow me to work more on my dissertation. Soon I was set up at the dining room table, and Dima was shut away in the bedroom-slash-library-slash-office, making calls to his former friends from Amon. I knew it was not an activity he enjoyed. Being part of Amon had meant a lot to Dima, until he had become disillusioned and turned against everything it stood for. So one could say that it still meant a lot to him. He had told me once that the best friends he'd ever had had been his fellow Amon officers, and he'd never be able to find that closeness with anyone in the civilian world. The heartfelt sincerity of the admission was somewhat spoiled for me by the fact that he'd said it shortly after we'd made love for the first time, but I appreciated the gesture. He'd been trying to share something important about himself with me, something more meaningful than mere sex. And so now he yearned to reconnect with them, even though he knew he never could. Most of them wouldn't speak with him and would spit in his face, or worse, if they ran into him on the street. But a few of them still kept in touch out of respect for their shared time in the crucible of Chichnya, and maybe also out of a shared disillusionment, and passed on information they thought he might find useful. When we broke for lunch, Dima said he was in luck. One of his old friends had a nephew who was a Berkut officer, but who had come to Moscow for the holiday, and who might be willing to grant him an interview. If, that is, Dima could go talk to him this very afternoon. He's unhappy about missing everything that's going on down in Kiev right now, Dima said. He feels like he's letting his comrades down. He's catching the overnight train to Kiev this evening. And, Dima made a face, he'll only talk to me face to face. I asked about Skype, but he wants to meet me in person. Says he's... Dima made another face, heard all about me, and wants to see how much of it is true. Frankly, I think he's on the verge of suffering a crisis of conscience. He doesn't like the protesters, but he doesn't like what Berkut's being asked to do either. But he won't speak freely over the phone. What do you think? Is it okay if I invite him over? Of course. No problem at all. I can be the gracious hostess if you think that would help loosen him up. Or hide in the bedroom if you think that would be better. Both offers were turned down, however, since Alech, the Berkut officer, didn't want to schlep across Moscow to meet a stranger instead of spending the last few hours of his leave with his girlfriend. The only way he would meet with Dima would be if Dima would come see him off at the train station. He's catching the 1742 train out of Kiev station, Dima said. He's planning to show up at 4.30 to have a drink with friends before he goes. And he might be willing to grant me a short interview if I show up then. And he's in a good mood, and his friends aren't eavesdropping and distracting him. You should go, I said. What if we get followed, and someone comes up and threatens you while I'm talking to him? I'll stay here, I said. By yourself? I won't go out. I won't open the door. Do you really think they're going to break down the door and force their way in? They're just trying to scare us and keep you from working on the story. And they think it's worked, since you said you were going to back off. We haven't seen any sign of them for the past two days, have we? And if they're still watching us, which they don't appear to be, they're probably going to follow you, not attack me. Maybe, said Dima. I don't like it. If I go out, I'll leave you the Makarov. Definitely not. 
He rolled his eyes, probably to stop himself from laughing at me. Why did I spend all that time training you how to shoot it if you won't use it when you need it? Because it gave you a good reason to put your arms around me? Dima smiled at the memory. That was definitely the best thing about those training sessions. I'll give you one thing. You've really humbled me to the dust. I was sure, what with all my training, I could teach you to be as good a markswoman as Mama, at least. Galina Ivanovna had been a riflery champion in high school. But you're a crap shot, Inichka. Okay, I'll take the handgun. And you can have all the knives and frying pans in the kitchen. They're proper women's weapons anyway. Some women are good shots, I said, like your mother, or Ludmila Pavlichenka. Thank God the motherland never had to rely on your shooting abilities to fight off the Nazis, Inichka. Maybe only Russian women can shoot. Anyway, don't go out, not even onto the stairs. Don't answer the door. Don't let anyone know you're here by yourself. In fact, go sit in the back room with the curtains drawn so that no one can see you from the street. If Mama comes home before I do... Ask Marfa Vasilyevna to stay until I get back, and then I'll walk her downstairs to her apartment. I'll text you when I'm at the door. Chapter 8 I set myself up with my laptop in the corner of the bedroom that served as Galina Ivanovna's library-slash-office. There was a small desk and a comfy chair and books piled up everywhere, including a number that were related to my dissertation topic. Over the last year, Galina Ivanovna had added to her already substantial Tsvetaeva collection so that she could discuss my dissertation with me in detail. Some of the books piled up on her desk had bookmarks sticking out of them with notes in Galina Ivanovna's spiky handwriting that said, Show Ina. I started going through them. Dima texted me after a few minutes to say that he had made it to the metro station and hadn't seen any signs of watchers or followers. He texted me again a little later to let me know he'd made it to Kiev Station, and was still, as far as he could tell, unmarked. Everything's quiet here, I texted back. I'm just working in the office. Good. Stay there until Mama and Marfa Vasilyevna get there. Here comes Adyakh. Looks like he's already started his farewell celebrations. I'll be lucky to get three sober words out of him. Good luck, I texted and went back to going through the sources Galina Ivanovna had flagged. I stopped to take a short break around five. Galina Ivanovna should be home before six. I would work for another half an hour, and then start heating up the food she had left for supper. She considered it inappropriate for me to cook, both because I was an American and because I was a guest, and she liked to leave food that Dima or I could just heat up, despite all my protests that I was perfectly capable of cooking for myself, and others, too. But no self-respecting Russian hostess would heed such wild talk. As usual, the fridge was overflowing with shi, cabbage soup, borscht, buckwheat, and two different kinds of vareniki, the Russian version of pierogies. All I had to do was make my selection and reheat it, which would only take a few minutes. As I was sitting back down at the desk, this time with the virtuous intention of standardizing the formatting of my footnotes. I heard knocking and loud voices downstairs. At first I ignored it, but by the time I was on my fourth footnote, it was apparent that whatever was going on, it was moving up the stairs towards me. After a moment of nervous hesitation, I stepped cautiously into the front room in order to hear better. The curtains were all drawn so no one could see into the apartment from the street, 
But by this time it was full dark, and I had to turn on a light, signaling my presence. I found myself ducking down instinctively as I did so. But no bullets or Molotov cocktails came flying in through the window. The disturbance was coming from the stairs, not the street. Some intent listening told me that someone was working his way up the stairs, knocking on apartment doors, telling the residents something in a loud voice, and leaving consternation in his wake. I could hear the sound of more and more footsteps on the stairs, as if everyone in this part of the building was making a hasty exit. Ah, crap! I didn't want to leave, but if the building was being evacuated, I couldn't stay either. I grabbed my phone and my purse, which had my all-important ID documents in case I got stopped by the police, and started putting on my outdoor clothes. There was a loud knocking across the landing. I looked out the peephole. A man in coveralls, work boots, and a jacket that said Moscow's pounded vigorously on the door. Open up, he shouted. Mandatory evacuation. There's a gas leak in the building. I pulled on my boots. Going outside was a bad idea. But staying inside, when there was a potential gas leak, something the creaky Russian infrastructure was notorious for, was worse. If the people on Dima's case were out there, the worst they had done so far was issue vague threats. Vague threats were better than asphyxiation or being blown sky high. I was already opening the door when the Moscow's man came over to knock on it. You hurt, he said. Gas leak. Mandatory evacuation. Everyone is asked to relocate to the courtyard across the street. Is there anyone else in this unit? Just me, I told him, and joined the mass exodus down the stairs. We all headed in a clump over to the courtyard of the apartment complex across the street. Timofey Matvievich, Marfa Vasilyevna's husband, came up to me as I was trying to compose a text to Dima telling him what it was happening. Ina, right? he said. His face was pinched and tired, like maybe he'd seriously overdone his holiday celebrations and hadn't slept in days. Dima's fiancé. He swallowed. I wasn't sure if it was me making him nervous or the thought of Dima. He'd always had a tendency to stare at me out of the corner of his eye when he thought I wasn't looking, like he couldn't believe there was an American living right here up the stairs from him. And rumor was that he'd done time back in his youth, and the sight of anyone with anything to do with Amon or the police was still enough to make him turn and run. It's Matveich from downstairs. Of course, I said. I guess we should warn Galina Ivanovna and Marfa Vasilyevna about what's going on. I'm about to go pick them up. He swallowed again and jigged from foot to foot, screwing up his courage before bursting out with, Why don't you come with me? There's a room in the car, and better than standing out here in the cold for God knows how long. Sure, I said. For Moscow in January, it wasn't actually that cold. But I had thrown on my coat without my mittens, hat, or headscarf, and I was already starting to feel the chill. Thanks. Riding around in a car would not only be warmer, but it would keep me off the street and out of sight of any watchers who were out there, and then Galina Ivanovna and I would be together and able to look out for each other. I followed Timofey Matvievich through the crowded courtyard to the back alley where he kept his elderly Lada. Get in the front, he told me. That way Marfa and Galia can gossip to each other the whole way home. I got into the front passenger seat. Timofey Matvievich got into the driver's seat and started the engine. How long do you think it'll be before we can go back into the building, I asked. Will we be driving around all night, do you think? 
That depends on you, said a voice behind me. There was movement in the darkness of the back seat, and then something cold and metallic pressed against the back of my head. Chapter 9 Don't turn around, the man holding the gun said. He pronounced the nye in the sentence with a hard Caucasian na. I obeyed, staring straight ahead at the snow that was starting to gather on the Lada's windshield. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see a second man sit up in the back seat, and Timofey Matvievich giving me an apologetic look. I'm sorry, Ina, he said. They've been coming to us for days, making us inform on you. When you didn't come out, they arranged the story of the gas leak, and they threatened Marfa if I didn't help them. Shut up, ordered the second man. Let's go. We're going to go for a little ride. An excursion to Gorky Park. Unlike the man holding the gun to my head, his accent was pure Russian. Just a second, he said. First we have to get a picture. Look this way. I turned my head, careful not to knock it against the barrel of the gun, so that I was facing him. He was wearing a ski mask. In my peripheral vision, I could see the other man was wearing a ski mask, too. I'd like to have thought that someone would do something about two ski-masked bandits kidnapping someone, but dark as it was and as bundled up as people tended to be this time of year, most likely no one would even notice anything wrong. Smile, sweetheart, said the Russian man, holding up his phone. Smile. I bared my teeth. I knew I should be terrified, but my fear was submerged beneath a deluge of fury. It was all I could do not to launch myself at the man and attack him tooth and claw as he snapped a picture of me. Don't do that, I told myself. That's not clever. You have to be clever. I'm sure your fiancé will be happy to get this picture of his bride, said the man with the phone. He sent a text message. That should warm his heart. Now let's go. The Gorky Park Museum on Krimskival Street. I've told your fiancé to meet us at the observatory nearby, sweetheart. Easy to find, but should give us the privacy we need for our little tete-a-tete. We started rolling through the dark streets of January in Moscow. I thought about asking what they wanted, but I was pretty sure I knew. He's not working on the story, I said instead. He quit, just like you told him to. He's off working on another story right now. He's quit for now said the Russian man. But we know Dima Kuznetsov. He's awfully hard to convince. We gave him a good beating a few months ago. Told him we'd do him like Alyakashin got done if he didn't keep his nose out of our business. And what did he do? Stuck it right back in as soon as he could. Of course, he's a real tough guy, isn't he? An Amon officer in Chechnya before he had a change of heart. Isn't that right? The man directly behind me, the one with a gun that was no longer pressed against my head, but whose presence I could still sense, made a growling noise in the back of his throat. Under other circumstances, I wouldn't have blamed him. The reputation of Amon in Chechnya was very deservedly bad. Fucking whore, the man behind me said, the curse words sounding funny with his accent. You know what we do to whores who fuck Amon officers. Their own fathers kill them, or their brothers. It's the only way to return the family owner. Was your fiancé at Novia Aldi? Novia Aldi was the site of a particularly heinous massacre committed by Amon and Chichnya. No, I said. He wasn't there. And he wasn't like that, I added. He didn't do things like that. 
I said it with more confidence than I actually felt. I knew Dima hadn't been at Nolvia Aldi, and I was pretty sure he hadn't been involved in the gang rape and murder of civilians, but his hands weren't exactly clean either. He all did things like that, said the Chechen man. All Russians are the same. The only reason I'm working with this guy here is because your boyfriend has pissed off both our bosses so much that we've had to join up to stop him. He's not writing the article, I swear, I said. He's interviewing someone from Berkut right now. And he's planning to head back to Ukraine tomorrow or the next day. He's much more interested in that than anything you're doing, and so is his editor. Good, said the Russian man. Let's make sure it stays that way. Oh-ho! Here's a text from him. He's not happy, sweetheart. Not happy at all. He's got a bit of a temper, doesn't he, darling? I shrugged. Both men laughed. That's what the ladies like, isn't it? said the Russian. A hothead's better than a wimp, isn't that true? Especially in bed. I stared out the window without answering. If you had asked me before how I would react in this situation, I would have guessed that I'd be crying and begging for my life. But I was still too angry to trust myself not to mouth off. I was too angry even to want to be out of this situation. I didn't want it to end until I got my satisfaction. For the first time in my life, I understood the visceral attraction of blood vengeance. The Chechen man poked me in the back of the head with the gun. Maybe if you're lucky, sweetheart, you'll get to find out what real hot blood is like. Have you ever been with a mountain man? I didn't answer. He poked me harder. I bet you have, he said. A whore like you has been with all kinds of men, haven't you? Tell me, what kind of man is best in bed? Don't sit there like a stump. Answer. My fiancé, I said. I bet I could change your mind, sweetheart. But I've been given to another, and to him I will be eternally faithful, I quoted. Where did that come from? Why am I reciting lines from Eugene Onegin while being held at gunpoint? What is wrong with me? Oho, she knows our Pushkin, said the Russian. Do you know any more, darling? Recite something for us. It'll help pass the time while we're stuck in traffic here. We were stopped in one of Moscow's infamous traffic jams on the garden ring. Timofey Matvievich was fidgeting in his seat, swallowing nervously and tapping his fingers on the steering wheel, leaving sweaty prints behind. I could sympathize. Even without a couple of gun-toting thugs in the car, driving on the garden ring was enough to shatter the strongest nerves. I loved you once, I began, reciting one of Pushkin's most famous poems. Maybe it would distract everyone. Maybe it would win me points somehow. Amazing, said the Russian when I was done. It's almost like you're one of us. Can you recite anything else? I can recite some Sitaeva. I prefer the 19th century. Do you know any Lermontov? Go, go, go! Timofey Matvievich gunned the Lada into a hole that had suddenly opened up in traffic. We were moving again. Traffic thinned once we got off the garden ring, although it was still crawling along Krimsky Val as we approached Gorky Park. Drop us off here, the Russian ordered as we drew level with the Gorky Park Museum. Then go home. We won't need you anymore. And we've told them to let everyone back into the building. Your Marfa will be waiting for you when you get home. Timofey Matvievich gave me a mournful look, but said nothing. As soon as we were out of the car, he took off, his tires spinning in the new-fallen snow that was already turning to slush. Should I run? Now seemed like the most auspicious time to run. 
There were plenty of people driving and walking up and down Krimsky Wall. Maybe I could make a break for it. Let's go, sweetheart, said the Chechen. He took my arm in one hand and pressed the gun against my side with the other. I could feel it, but it was hidden under our coats, which meant passers-by couldn't see it either. Don't do anything stupid, he said. I've got a silencer, so one pull of the trigger and... Beef puff, kaput. No one would hear a thing. They'd just think you'd fainted. Understand? I understand, I said. Good girl, let's go. We headed off into the trees. Chapter 10 During the day, this side of Gorky Park is cheerful and full of people. The observatory is a charming little round red brick building with a silver dome roof and lots of visitors. On a wet, snowy evening in January, though, the only thing around it were bare trees. You could see the open-air Gorky Park Museum from it, but it was deserted, too. The two men hustled me around to the far side of the observatory from the museum in Krimsky Val Street. A few people were walking along the Pushkin embankment, but we were half-hidden in the trees from them. No doubt to any casual observers, we looked like three people stopping for a smoke. Two of them were wearing ski masks, but it was January. Even with global warming, everyone was going around muffled up to the eyeballs. The Chechen man still held my arm with one hand and had the handgun pressed against my side through his coat pocket. Don't worry, sweetheart. Your boyfriend will be here soon enough, said the Russian. Why'd you pick him, anyway? American's not enough for you. You wanted a real Russian mujik. Something like that. I made myself smile sweetly. The thing that was hindering me still wasn't terror, but rage. I knew I should be afraid. Probably after this was over, I would be. But right now the situation seemed too surreal to be frightening. The barrel of the handgun pressed against my side felt too small to do the deadly damage I knew it was capable of. And it seemed impossible that I could be shot dead in a park in Moscow, the city where I had always felt the safest. Bad things happened in Moscow, sometimes to me, I'd been threatened before, been stalked by unwanted admirers, had my purse snatched on the metro. But still, Moscow was home. And now these men were ruining that for me. I couldn't quite make myself believe that they would kill me, but they were already destroying something precious. Well, I have to hand it to you, sweetheart. You certainly picked someone with balls. Your Kuznetsov is the biggest pain in the ass we've had to sort out so far. We talked about just taking him out of the picture entirely. My Chechen colleagues wanted to waste him in the crapper, just like President Putin wanted to do to them. Poetic justice, they said. But wasting journalists, in or out of the crapper, can get you unwanted publicity. We thought we'd give him one more chance to do the right thing. And I'm sure when he takes one look at your pretty face, he'll come to his senses. Especially if you cry. Do you promise to cry, sweetheart? Sure, I said. Whatever you want. Good girl, said the Russian. Oh, look, here he comes. A solitary figure stepped out from a clump of trees and held up its hands. I'm here, said Dima. Show me Ina. The Chechen pushed me forward. On your knees, he said. For a moment, I didn't realize he was talking to me. Then I couldn't make myself do it. He shook my shoulder. On your knees, he repeated. Let her go, said Dima. I'm here now. You can let her go. I don't think so, said the Russian. We have a message to deliver to you, 
and we can't do it without her. On your knees, sweetheart. Dima's face, hidden in the dark, was illuminated for a second by the flashing blue lights of a passing police car. For the first time, I saw with complete clarity the sight of him that he had always tried to keep hidden from me, the trained killer who deserved all those bad things they said about him. Then the police car moved on, leaving his face in darkness. The police hadn't seen us, or maybe they had and they didn't care. The Chechen gave me a hard shake. On your knees, he ordered. I looked over at Dima. Please, Ima, he said. His voice was calm and distant. A passing car lit up his face again. It scared me more than anything else so far. For the first time tonight, I felt in my bones that something very bad was going to happen. Do what they say. His face went dark again. I got down slowly onto my knees. Slush immediately started soaking into my pants, sending a deep chill up my legs and into my core. I was hatless, and my hood had slipped off. The Chechen pressed the handgun, still hidden in his coat, against the back of my bare head. There was no outcry from either the street or the footpath along the river. If anyone could see us, we probably looked like people about to engage in a kinky foursome. Maybe the very bad thing that was going to happen here was going to happen to me. It seemed impossible, unreal. My rage felt like a shield that would protect me from the most terrible of bullets. I knew that was an illusion, but I still believed it. You have my attention, Dima was saying. What do you want? I'll give it to you. We thought so, said the Russian with satisfaction. For a nice piece of ass like this. He jerked his head in my direction. Who can blame you? Leave all this investigating behind, fuck off home, and screw your girlfriend. Everyone will be happier. Investigating what? Dima asked. You know. I investigate a lot of things. You'll have to spell it out for me. What do you think, moron? demanded the Chechen. Kovnaft! That's what. And Kovboyets. Get your nose out of our business. No problem said Dima. He took a step closer, his hands still up in the air. I was going to drop that story anyway. Not just because you asked me to, but because no one cares about the Caucasus right now. It's all the Euromaidan. I'm shipping her. He nodded at me. Off to America tomorrow, and then I'm catching the next train down to Kiev. You have nothing to worry about from me. That's good, said the Chechen. I'm glad you've got some sense, Kuznetsov. But... He looked over at the Russian. I think we need to make sure you remember to keep your word. You're not from the mountains, so I can't trust you to have any honor. But maybe a permanent mark on your girlfriend's face will help you remember what you promised. Seems a shame to mess up something so pretty, said the Russian. Maybe we should just take her with us for a little while. He came over and stood in front of me. You look awfully cute on your knees like that, sweetheart. What else can you do in that position? I said nothing. He grabbed my hair and pulled my head back, forcing me to look him in the face. I asked you a question, he said. What else can you do in that position? Lots, I said. Both men laughed. I like her, said the Chechen. She could almost be a mountain woman. Okay, this is what we'll do. We'll take her away with us, and you can leave for the Ukraine. Or is it, leave for Ukraine now? I can't keep track of what you Russians are doing to your language. Anyway, send us a picture of you on the Maidan once you get there, hanging out with all your European Union friends, and we'll let her go. 
Okay, said Dima. On one condition. Let me give her a kiss goodbye before I leave. Both men laughed again. What is this? Wait for me and I'll return, said the Russian. This isn't the great patriotic war. You won't have your woman waiting faithfully for you to return from the glorious front. I know, said Dima. That's why I want to say goodbye. Because once you're done with her, I won't want her back. I had enough spoiled meat while I was in Chechnya. I'm not eating any more. But I want something to remember her by. One kiss, and I'll leave silently. Otherwise, though, I'll make a big fuss. You know I can do it, and we're close enough to the street that people will be bound to notice. But this way, we all get what we want. The two men exchanged a glance. I don't know, said the Chechen. All right, said the Russian. It might help you remember to keep your word and stay out of our business in the future. One kiss. You can come up here and give it to her. The Chechen pulled me to my feet and pushed me forward. Remember, he said, any funny business and I'll shoot. I've shot people in downtown Moscow before. And I can do it again if you make me. I'll shoot both of you. One kiss, and then you turn around and leave. Got it? Got it, said Dima. He started walking slowly towards me. And keep your hands up, said the Russian. No problem, said Dima. He closed the distance between us until he was right up against me. Get a move on, said the Russian. We haven't got all night. Sure, said Dima. He bent forward and kissed the top of my head, light as a butterfly. I could feel him inhale the scent of my hair, as he always did. Are you ready? He whispered into my ear. I nodded. Then run. His hands came down from where they'd been hovering above his head, and he spun me behind him and threw me in the direction of a clump of trees, sending me flying like a figure skater throwing his partner into a triple jump. I hit the ground and rebounded off the slushy snow into another huge leap. A shot fired. I darted right into the trees. Another shot fired. I darted left. The bare branches provided little cover, but I was a dark moving figure on a dark night, with random bursts of light and movement in the background, and the one gun I knew they had was a handgun, hidden under a heavy coat. They'd have to be both very good and very lucky to get me. There was another shot, and a furious yell. I paused and turned to look. Dima was standing over the Russian man, who was lying on the ground, clutching his leg. The Chechen was a couple of paces away, his gun drawn on Dima. Jachmate, he said. You can't go anywhere, Amon soldier. One step and I'll shoot. Then I'll hunt down your girlfriend and shoot her too. Good luck with that, said Dima. And that would bring some unwanted attention to your business. Shooting a Russian journalist is one thing. Shooting an American citizen is another. The State Department will come down on your ass like a ton of bricks. Maybe the CIA as well. I'd leave her out of it if I were you. I hesitated, half hidden in the trees. Run or stay? Removing myself from the situation meant getting myself out of immediate danger and also giving them less leverage on Dima. But it also meant leaving Dima alone with them and maybe running into more of their crew and getting captured all over again. Dima shifted slightly. His right hand was in his coat pocket, which was tented strangely and had a hole in it. He must have had his gun in there and shot through it to take down the Russian. And now he and the Chechen were in a stalemate. I started to retreat, my steps deliberately loud and clumsy in the soft snow. 
The Chechen took his attention off Dima, turning to look at me and then bringing his gun around to aim at me. Dima pulled his gun out of his pocket and fired in one smooth move, just as the Chechen fired at me. The Chechen and I both yelled and jumped. It took both of us a second to realize that he had been shot, and I hadn't. Blood, black in the evening darkness, was trickling down his hand, and his gun was lying on the snow at his feet. Checkmate, said Dima. Chapter 11 "'You haven't heard the last of us,' said the Chechen. His hand must have been hurting fiercely, but he didn't show it. The Russian groaned once in the snow, but then shut up. "'I will if I kill you,' said Dima. He was holding the gun just in front of him, not too obvious to any curious passers-by, but ready to shoot. Two bandits killed in a shootout, and one of them a Caucasian. How hard do you think the police will investigate?' If they think it's you behind it, pretty hard, said the Chechen. By then I'll be in Kiev, and maybe I'll ask for political asylum, leave Russia for good. You do that, said the Chechen. That would be the wise thing. Forget Russia, forget us, forget all of this. Go have fun with your western whores and leave us alone. On the other hand, said Dima, you kidnapped my fiancée and held a gun to her head. Not to mention the other stuff you threatened her with. I can't let that slide. The Chechen snorted. Honor, Amon soldier. You. I don't believe it. My brother's family was in Novia Aldi. You know what happened to them. You know what they did to his wife. To his little girl. You owe me. Blood vengeance. I know what happened in Novia Aldi, said Dima. But it wasn't me. I wasn't there. But you were in other places, weren't you? I was in a filtration camp myself. Pop one, in fact, the worst of them all. They chained me to an iron cross and left me to hang until my arms dislocated. This was after they hooked electrodes to my balls and drove needles under my nails. Was that you? That wasn't me either, said Dima. I remember all my prisoners, and you weren't one. I just hope you weren't the one who disemboweled and beheaded my friend on camera and laughed while you wrote Allahu Akbar on the wall with his blood. And for what it's worth, I'm sorry. The Chechen laughed. Sorry? You're sorry, Amun soldier. I'm sure my brother will be glad to hear it. It will be a comfort to him as he raises his disabled son, all alone because his wife and daughter were raped and killed by you and your comrades. He will, said Dima, because that's why I'm going to let you go. I wasn't at Novia Aldi, or Papuan, but my comrades were, and all of us did a lot of terrible things. You're seeking blood vengeance, but I'm seeking absolution. For me and for you. So I'm going to walk away, and you're going to let me, and then you can call your bosses and have them come get you, and let them know that next time they come after me it will be a lot messier. But if they leave me alone, let me send my fiancé back to America and head off to Kiev in peace. I'll leave them alone, too. And why should we believe you? I guess you'll have to take it on faith, Dima said. He started to back away, his gun not quite raised but still on the ready. We'll have a truce. For now. But when things calm down in Ukraine, I'll check back in with you. And if I find out you're still buying up orphans and street kids and turning them into your hired killers, 
I'll come after you. Tell your bosses that. I'm never going to be able to wipe out all the corruption in the oil business. Not in Russia. Even I know that. And there are other targets to go after than you. Bigger and better ones. But the orphans and street kids, leave them alone. They come to us of their own free will, said the Chechen. So send them somewhere else, said Dima. Somewhere where they can have a better future than being a jihadist or a mercenary. And you can tell them that Dima Kuznetsov says he's sorry. For everything that's happened to them and their people. For the things I did and the things my comrades did. I bow down to the earth and beg their forgiveness. But anyone who tries to touch me or my mother or my fiancé will die. Pass it on. Ina, let's go. I stepped out from the trees and walked cautiously over to Dima. Are you okay? he asked. I'm fine, I said, just angry. All three of the men laughed. Then I'd better get you out of here, said Dima. I need these two to still be alive so they can deliver my message. Good luck, boys. Don't let me see you around again. Dima took my arm and started backing us away, his eyes on the other two men and his gun still in his hand until we were on the far side of the observatory from them. Let's run, he whispered, and we took off towards the museum in the street, running flat out until we were on the sidewalk, surrounded by people and cars. They won't drive for us here, Dima said, slipping his gun back in his pocket. If anyone noticed it, they made no sign of it. Walk on this side of me, he said, so you're hiding the hole in my pocket. Most people will think I'm just a bum, but some might recognize it as a bullet hole. He started walking briskly towards the Krimsky Bridge across the Moskva. I slowed them down pretty good, he continued. We just need to get out of here without attracting attention. So we'll walk across the bridge arm in arm like any other young couple out for a romantic stroll. Nice running, by the way. And good job distracting them. Did you mean to do that? Yes, I said. Sort of. I was sure you had a plan, and you just needed them to look the other way to implement it. It was like I knew what you were thinking the whole time, like I had extrasensory perception or something. I know, said Dima. That's how it is in battle sometimes. Are you sure you're okay? Whole and unharmed, just angry, and my pants are wet. We can fix that, and you're not angry with me. For what? For what I said, about not wanting you back. I knew you didn't mean it. I knew you were doing it to save us. Just like I said I would do whatever they wanted. Good. That's good that you knew that. I didn't mean it. I wouldn't care what happened to you, Ina, or who you'd been with. I'd still want you back. You know what I told you. Like our great Dostoevsky said, the crown covers everything. Mirage wipes the slate clean. I wouldn't care what you'd done if you did it to survive. Which makes... He paused for a moment, halfway across the bridge, and looked out over the dark waters of the Moskva, back towards Gorky Park. There was no sign of the two men. Which makes, Dima said, what I'm about to do even harder. What are you going to do? I'm going to send you home, he said, still looking at the dark waters of the Moskva, flowing away beneath our feet. And I'm going to tell you not to come back.
Chapter 12 At first I didn't understand what Dima meant. By the time we got to the other side of Krimsky Bridge, I understood it, but I refused to accept it. You can't send me away, I said, more loudly than I should have, as he dragged me into the Culture Park metro station. Shh, we don't want to attract attention. Okay, I'll be quiet, but you can't send me away, I hissed as we strode through the marble arches and past the bas-reliefs of Soviet youths engaged in sports and recreation. You don't mean that. You're not in your right mind. You've gone crazy from all the stress. I am not leaving. You have a plane ticket to leave for America tomorrow, Ina. Temporarily. I want it to be permanent, Ina. I want you to get on that plane and never come back. Stay away from Russia. Stay away from me. I'm going to take you to a hotel, an American hotel, and leave you there for a night. And then tomorrow you'll go to Sheremetyeva, and you'll get on the plane, and you'll never look back. Are you crazy? We're getting married. Shh. We don't want anyone to remember us. I bit down on everything I wanted to say, and also on the intense desire to give Dima a very hard slap. This was one of those problems that couldn't be solved by violence, and I didn't solve my problems with violence anyway. All I'd done back there in the park was lie and obfuscate and run away. I'd been so furiously angry with my abductors I'd wanted to kill them, but I hadn't. I'd run away to save everyone involved. So now I had to figure out how to do the same thing here. I kept my mouth pinched firmly shut as we rode the inner ring line around to the north of town. Dima alternated between scanning everyone getting on and off the train, looking at his phone, and, when he thought I wasn't paying attention, looking out the corner of his eye at me. I was still tucked up against him, half sitting on his lap in the crowded subway car, shielding the hole in his pocket, and the gun I could feel against my thigh, from view. We're getting off here, Dima announced at Bielorusskaya station. We'll catch the Aero Express to Sheremetyeva. They have a hotel, an American chain, there at the airport. I've already booked a room. You'll spend the night there and catch your flight the next morning. You still have your purse, good girl. Do you have your passport? Yes. I tried not to sound sullen. I've got all my documents. Good. We can't go back to the apartment, and I can't have someone get your things and bring them to us in the hotel, in case they get followed. So you'll stay with me, the whole night? Yes. Dima was hurrying me through the graceful, vaulted arches of Belaruskaya Station, looking everywhere except at my face. I can't leave you by yourself. What if they come back? Okay. I remained silent while we bought tickets for the Aero Express and the entire half-hour ride to Sheremetyeva. Dima continued to hold me against him the whole way. I knew he wanted to hide the bullet hole in his pocket. But, as he so often did when he touched me, he held me like I was something precious and fragile, his fingers resting lightly on my hip and hand. Every now and then he brushed his cheek against the top of my head, inhaling the scent of my hair. He kept one arm around me as we got off the train and walked across to the hotel, and during the check-in process, and all the way to our room. He let go of me only once the door had shut behind us. Stay here, he told me. I have to sweep the location. Since it was a small room with one bed and a tiny bathroom, that didn't take long. It's clean, he said, coming out of the bathroom. Of course. I don't think they'll find us here. Yet. 
By tomorrow morning, they might. We had to check in under our own names. Why does the police state only seem to make things easier for criminals? I guess you can't answer that. Go take a shower. I'll make some calls. Find out what's going on with Mama. Make arrangements. Okay, I said. Those things had to be done in any case. No point in starting the argument until they'd been taken care of. When I came out of the shower, Dima was still on the phone. No, Mama, you stay there. No, not with Marfa Vasilyevna. No, I told you. They got to Timofey Matvievich by threatening her. He's the one who lured Ina away, once they got everyone out of the building with the false gas leak. At least he had the decency to call me and warn me after he dropped them off at Korki Park. But you have to stay far away from both of them. It's good that you're with Yelena Andreevna. Can you spend the night with her? And then leave for Murmansk tomorrow? No, Mama. You can't come say goodbye to Ina. It's not safe for either of you. No, Mama. There was a painful pause. She won't be coming back. I could hear the angry shout from the other end of the connection. Bye, Mama, Dima said, and hung up. She's safe? I sat down next to him on the bed. I was wearing nothing but a towel. Normally that would be a disadvantage, but in this case I thought it allowed me to negotiate from a position of strength. She's fine. Marfa Vasilyevna got a call and said she couldn't give her a ride home. Mama thought there was something suspicious and went home with her supervisor, Yelena Andreevna, instead. Yelena Andreevna's husband is a lieutenant colonel in the police. He's always looked out for me, even now. I think he's secretly sympathetic to the opposition, not that he'd ever admit it. So she should be a little safer there than elsewhere. She's going to spend the night with them and then leave tomorrow morning for Murmansk to her brother. She should be safe enough there. And I think it will take them at least a day or two to regroup. They don't want any more publicity if they can avoid it. And evacuating the building like that got them a lot of attention. They'll need to lie low for a bit, even if two of their operatives hadn't gotten shot. Good shooting, by the way. I was lucky. I figured I'd hit them, but for the first couple of shots I couldn't aim beyond that, so I just hoped for the best. And it worked out. It did. I put my arms around him. I know I have to leave now, but I will come back, I swear. He scooted away from me. I'll have your stuff shipped to you, he said. You can survive a few days without it, right? The clothes are no big deal, but I need my laptop. I'll express ship it to you. You'll have it by next week. And if it gets broken? I'll buy you a new one. You can't afford a new laptop, and it's got all my files on it. You've backed them up, right? Yeah, but... Ina, a laptop isn't worth dying for. None of this is worth dying for. I'm certainly not worth dying for. I'm not planning to die for anything or anyone. But you know what they say. Death is worth living for, and love is worth waiting for. Dima groaned. Please, Ina, don't make this harder than it is. Don't recite Kino lyrics to me when I'm trying to have a serious conversation with you. And I'm trying to have a serious conversation with you. And I'm telling you that I went into this with my eyes open. I knew what you were doing was dangerous, and that it could be dangerous for me too. And I decided to do it anyway. So here I am. You can't get rid of me. Ina. He pulled me against him and buried his face in my hair. He took three deep breaths and then pulled away. 
When he looked at me, his face was bleak. Ina, he said again, I can't do this anymore. Do you understand? I can't put you in that kind of danger. I can't stand it. So come to America with me. You keep telling me how safe it is. Come and find out for yourself. I can't. I can't. I meant what I said back there. I'm seeking. Maybe there is no absolution for me, and none for my people. But I have to seek it anyway. Do you understand? What kind of absolution will I find? Will we find? If I run away to America as soon as things get difficult. What kind of absolution will you find if you stay here? I don't know. But I have to find out. I have to, Ina. And I don't know if there's any hope for me, no matter where I am. When I came to get you, I had my phone on in my pocket. Not to the police, you understand. I had it set to record. I recorded the whole thing. Good, I said. Now you have evidence against them. Yeah, but... My first thought was to get the story. No, that's not true. My first thought was to save you. I swear it was. But my second thought was for the story. And the whole time I was there, I kept pushing them to confess, hoping the phone was recording, that I was getting all this down so that I could use it against them later. It made me sick at myself, but that's what I was thinking. I went in there like a journalist. Or a soldier. I'm those things before I'm a lover, Ina. I'll sacrifice anything to accomplish my objective, including me. And I almost sacrificed you. I understand, I said. That's okay. I know who you are. Do you? I think so. And I want you anyway. No, Ina. You don't. You want to get as far away from me as possible. You just haven't realized it yet. That's not a decision you get to make for me. This is a decision that affects both of us, but you're making it on your own. You can't do that. I have to, Ina. You don't have the right. To my horror, I started to cry. You don't have the right to send me away. Stop being such a Decemberist wife, Ina. Maybe that's what I want to be. No, no, you don't. He pushed me away from him and got off the bed. What will it take, Ina? What will it take to get you to leave me? I don't know. It hasn't happened yet. That's because you're a silly little romantic fool, Ina. So I have to make this decision for the both of us. Don't cry, Ina. He sat back down on the bed, pulled back to me as if by elastic bands. Ina, it's better this way. Trust me. No, it's not. How is it better this way? Ina... Look at me. Believe me, it's better this way. Because if you think your heart is breaking now, imagine how terrible it would be if I let it go any further. So I have to stop it now for the both of us. No, I said. No, no, no. Please don't do this. Please, Ina, stop crying. But I couldn't. Chapter 13 my flight out of Sheremetyeva left at 6.10 a.m., which meant getting to the airport at 4 a.m., which meant getting up at 3.30 a.m. Luckily, neither of us were asleep then anyway. We had alternated between arguing, dozing, and keeping watch for the sudden arrival of any bad guys all night. No bad guys showed up, but when we left the hotel at 3.45 a.m., Dima was still adamantly insisting that we were over and I should never come back to Russia. I don't believe you, 
I finally said, as we walked away from the check-in desk. Dima had one hand on the small of my back, and his eyes were flicking back and forth between me and our surroundings. When have I ever lied to you, Ina? I'm not saying you're lying. I'm saying you're wrong. Ina. We stopped at the end of the line, shuffling towards security and passport control. Dima made one final survey of the cavernous airport hall, and then turned me to face him. He put his hands on my shoulders and rested his forehead against mine. Ina, I'm not wrong, and we both know it. Being with me is dangerous, and even if it weren't, it's no life for you. You deserve a man who will put you first, not second. I'm like a junkie. You shouldn't be with a junkie. You should be with a good man who loves you. You love me. Not enough, said Dima. Then, belying his words, he wrapped his arms around me and pulled me up against him. His embrace was firm and also as gentle as if I were a precious butterfly, just like always. He inhaled and exhaled deeply. I don't love anyone enough, Ina. Not the way they deserve. I'm a selfish dickhead with a death wish, and I'll get you killed if you let me. And I know you'll let me, so I have to put a stop to this before it's too late. Otherwise I'll never be able to look myself in the face. He let go of me and stepped back. One hand still rested on my shoulder, as if it couldn't bear to let me go. Go with God, Ina, he said. This isn't over. Yes, it is. He gave me a gentle push. Go catch your plane before it flies off without you. This isn't over, I repeated, as the line to the security scanners carried me off with it. When I looked back, Dima was watching me, one hand over his mouth. I made it through security and passport control and was loaded onto my cattle-class seat with no delays. Not having any luggage helped things. Having no computer and nothing to read made the upcoming flight loom ahead of me as ten hours of unbearable tedium and bitter reflection. "'I hate these early morning flights, don't you?' said the man next to me. "'And it's impossible to sleep on them, too, especially back here by the bathrooms.' Yeah, I said. I hate these flights. Your first time here in Moscow? No, I used to live here, actually. So were you here on business or pleasure? A bit of both, I guess. Yeah, me too. Well, I'm here on business, even though my company wouldn't spring for business class seats. But I also got lots of sightseeing in. It was my first time in Russia. It wasn't what I was expecting, that's for sure. No, I said. It rarely is. The man started talking about his trip and his business and his family waiting for him back in Texas. He had something to do with oil, I gathered. I smiled and made polite noises as the plane pulled away from the gate and began taxiing down the runway, carrying me inexorably away from Dima and everything I cared about. So you like it here? The man asked. Yes. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. Our business went well, so I'm hoping to come back, but in the summer. Is this place any nicer in the summer? Because the winter, who oh boy, was that cold. Yes, I said. It's very nice in the summer. Glad to hear it. You do anything exciting while you are here? I hear the nightlife can be pretty wild. It's true the nightlife can be pretty wild if you go out looking for it, I said. But I try to avoid that kind of thing. I don't really like the wildlife. 
I thought of the killing rage I had felt when the two men had come and taken me away. Rage that had never found an outlet. When it came down to it, I had chosen to run away rather than give in to it, so that all four of us could live. But those men were still out there. They were still out there, and so were the companies they worked for, the ones who had sent them after me. If it hadn't been for them, Dima never would have felt the need to break up with me. If they hadn't interfered, that side of him wouldn't have had to come out, and he wouldn't have been horrified by it, and he wouldn't have sent me away. I knew blaming everything on them was an oversimplification, but I could still feel the thirst for blood vengeance against them, crying out from deep inside of me. Dima had shown his killing side to me yesterday, but they'd never given me a chance to demonstrate mine. And now that it had been awakened, it refused to go back to sleep. Those men, and the men they worked for, had wanted to use me as a good to barter, to exchange me for things they valued more than love and human life, like money. But unlike cars and cocaine and cold hard cash, I was not an inert substance. I had a mind and a will of my own. They could make their plans, but they couldn't make me go along with them. Not the men who had threatened me, not Dima, not anyone. Only I could make the decision about how I was going to live my life, and what I was willing to spend it on. So you think you'll be back? Asked the man next to me as the plane lifted off the runway. Yes, I said. I glanced at the cheap engagement ring on the fourth finger of my right hand, and then out the window, where early morning Moscow glowed brightly at me through the January dark. I'll be back. The End That was For an Exchange, the prequel novella to the Dr. Rowena Halley series, by Sid Stark. Copyright 2019. Narrated by Sid Stark. Production Copyright 2021. Thank you for listening to Foreign Exchange. To find out more about the characters, get your free story, and sign up for my mailing list, please visit my website at sidstarkauthor.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter at at sidstarkauthor.com.